From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM, chaifm.com. This is the new Blue Review. I'm Benji Shulman. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you once again on the program with the best Jewish current affairs radio stroke podcast stroke people having to listen to my voice thing that there is out there. Nice to be with you once again, bringing you all the different aspects that we have covering in the Jewish world at the moment. And we decided this week that we would go right to the heart of the beast, so to speak. We live in a world of alternative views, sometimes alternative facts and fake news and a crazy, insane media environment. So to try and help us navigate what that means and what it means from a Jewish perspective, we brought into studio Yaffa Frederick. She's from CNN. She's part of the International Producing Edition, working on both the website and some of the TV aspects. And if you are a regular listener to the show, you will definitely have heard her giving her opinion on the U.S. electoral cycle, which I think, thankfully, we can now say is well behind us. Yaffa, welcome to the show. Good to be with you on the New Blue Review. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, uh, two years you've been coming on telling us about the election, and now suddenly we have a State of the Union address. What did you think of that? People saying that actually the Donald is starting to look less like a duck? I believe the term uh, that one CNN commentator used was he's starting to actually look presidential. Um, Tuesday night was a much more refined speech rather than invoking fear and danger and threat both internal and external, he actually had much more of a message of unity, which is somewhat unusual for him, uh, but it certainly put more people at ease. According to early polls that we did, 78% of Americans actually liked the speech, which is a higher approval rating than Trump has gotten for any other action that he has taken um, by both parties. And so I'm not going to say it marks the beginning of a new era, but it certainly indicates that he might be learning a few things in his first five weeks in office and starting to apply some of those lessons, at least to his rhetoric, if not his action. Um, there continues to be a kind of perpetual state of drama that surrounds his administration. Does anyone even believe polls anymore? You know, it's funny. I think after the election, and I say this working for one of the big pollsters, uh, there, were, there were a lot of questions about the viability of a lot of these polls. But um, there is there is some credence to be given to them. There's a difference in predicting electoral outcomes and assessing opinions after the fact. And so I think that, you know, assessing how an audience viewed a State of the Union address is actually a much more accurate poll. Uh, people are working with a complete set of data at that point. Um, and there's less of a fear of a bias. Uh, with Trump, I mean, Trump was such a divisive candidate that a lot of people, and, and I had said this very early on, I thought there were a lot of Trump supporters that were afraid to admit that they were Trump supporters, uh, that thought that they would be associated with racism or misogyny or bigotry. Um, and really, they were just, you know, like finance folk who wanted to take home a few more dollars. Um, and so they weren't necessarily honest at the polls. Uh, when we look at some of the polling data after the election, you see that in the, the suburbs right outside of major cities like Philadelphia or Detroit or Milwaukee in these three kind of critical swing states of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, these suburbs had gone for Obama twice and suddenly went for Trump. And these weren't poor, uneducated white folk. These were actually 
often quite wealthy suburban white folk um, who saw, I would argue, an economic opportunity to be made under a president who is going to deregulate the market system um, and, and has already started to do so. So I, I don't think the polls have no validity, but I do think that we have to try to understand uh, who we're studying and what some of their internal biases might be in responding. And the media industry itself has had to do a little bit of introspection in the last a couple months, even the last year, given what's been going on in the international politics. CNN in particularly has come under quite a lot of abuse from President Trump for being a fake news site or uh, whatever he particularly feels on the day. Yeah. But fake news itself is becoming quite a serious threat to just the general media discourse out there. Totally. It's it's actually, I would say, it's one of the, the things that keeps me up at night, somewhere between, like, antibiotic resistance and cyber warfare. Um, and, it, and it's because in an age where you cannot distinguish fact from fiction, people begin to make decisions often based on those fictions. Um, Facebook is probably the biggest aggressor on this front, and it took until after the U.S. election for Mark Zuckerberg to finally admit that fake news had proliferated on his site and had grossly influenced the outcomes. Um, and, you know, certainly, certainly Trump loves to call CNN fake news. Probably once a week he tweets it, if not more. Um, I, I will say, you know, most CNN commentators endeavor to be their most objective selves. Um, and to, and certainly the reporters, obviously the reporters are different from the commentators. The commentators are paid to have opinions. The reporters are paid to not have them. Um, I think the reporters do their due diligence. I mean, Trump is questioning the way journalists do journalism. So for example, one of his big issues is that journalists, um, often use unnamed sources. And he says that they should be named. I mean, this is one of the, the fundamentals of good journalism is you need to protect your sources and your sources come first. And there's a certain integrity that's attached to the institutions that produce that news. And so you learn to respect it, even if the sources aren't named. So in the most recent example that we're seeing playing out, there's a lot of there there are leaks coming out of the intelligence community. I mean, that that's a fact. Is it, is it more than previous administrations? Possibly more. But does that mean that you name every CIA, FBI operative that has leaked any information? Absolutely not. And the idea that Trump expects that to happen um, is kind of asinine to me. Uh, so it, it's a danger. It's a danger. And when he when he discredits CNN or he discredits the New York Times, which he likes to refer to as the failing New York Times, um, it's deeply problematic because many Americans believe him. I mean, it, it's with 25 million Twitter followers, when he says something, people listen. I thought there was a great response to him by, I think it was Reddit who put out the the dossier on the Russian stuff. And uh, he said that they are the failing, a failing news site. BuzzFeed did that. But it was a BuzzFeed. That's right, BuzzFeed. not Reddit. So BuzzFeed retweeted uh he called it a failing piece of garbage that's correct pilot trash yeah. pilot trash and and so they responded they tweeted back that just like to point out that in fact uh, they're an ex- a succeeding pile of garbage they're so they're a very successful pile of garbage uh in fact well, mostly, ben, mostly just a pile of cat memes to be perfectly honest well so ben smith who is the news uh editor um the head of all editorial content at buzzfeed actually changed his twitter bio right afterwards to like editor-in-chief of Pile of Trash. Um, so they kind of owned it. It was it was a badge of honor, which is kind of how I feel, too, whenever Trump calls CNN fake news. It's like, it's a badge of shame that I wear with honor. What's interesting, though, is that not all of the fake news that seems to have come out during the period 
was necessarily malicious or propagandist. A very interesting article I read somewhere, which I hope was not on a fake news site, was about a small town in Macedonia where a bunch of teenagers had figured out that if they shared Trump stories on websites that they had bought with cheap domains that they could make a lot of money. And so it just like spread, but from a purely non-moral perspective. Totally. Well, when it's Macedonia... Uh, and Macedonia's connection to Russia is is hard to disentangle. I wouldn't say it was completely innocuous. Um, I I would argue a lot of the fake news sites that proliferated during the election, particularly the ones that came out of Eastern European countries, that Macedonia was probably one of the biggest aggressors. I think it was something like over two thousand websites that they created for Trump. Uh, it was not all innocent, and I, I'm sure that these young individuals who created the sites got paid handsomely. I would not be surprised if they got paid handsomely by powers outside of Macedonia. Um, That's pure speculation on my part. But it is one of those things where the role of Russia in the U.S. elections can't be ignored. And even as early as this morning, um, the latest crisis unfolding in the U.S. is that our attorney general, who's the head of our Justice Department and instructs the FBI, um, it comes out that he had met with the Russian ambassador twice during the election cycle. And when he was going through confirmation hearings a few weeks ago and asked specifically about this, simply answered, no, I didn't. And it's like, well, you did. And all of the and he argues now that it was when he was a part of the Armed Services Committee as a senator. But notably, no one else on the Armed Services Committee has come out and said we met the Russian ambassador. So why was it just just sessions? Um, and what did he talk about with that Russian ambassador? He claims to have no recollection of the conversation, um, which is convenient, but problematic. A little bit of uh, Manchurian candidate vibes uh, Mm. running through the administration. Certainly uh, is quite interesting to watch that go on. Already taken out a senior member of the administration. It might be one of those stories that follows this particular administration as it goes through. Yeah, I think uh, with the National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's resignation two weeks ago now, um, and just, I mean, the – the allegations of the Russian involvement in the election will continue to dog the Trump administration. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if a special prosecutor is appointed at a certain point to fully investigate this. Obviously, the Democrats are pushing for this, but even certain Republicans like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, uh, who have been pretty vocal against Trump and against Russia, are kind of on board to pursue this. You know, to be frank, even Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate majority leader, has said that, like, he thinks there's grounds to investigate the role of Russia. Um, And it's not just about Trump. It's about this idea of an outside power meddling in U.S. elections and a particularly manipulative outside power uh, involving itself in U.S. elections that probably should be fully investigated. I was watching some commentators looking at this particular issue of fake news and trying to figure out what potential ways there are to kind of solve it. You know, Facebook now looking at uh, flagging potential sites that are problematic. Interestingly, one of their sort of ideas that they came out with was they said that eventually a fake news cycle will actually kind of play itself out and there are ways to stop it. They said what concerns this particular commentator is that in a crisis situation, a proliferation of fake news could change an instantaneous decision and only after it's been verified and checked a little bit later that suddenly you can solve the problem. So it's uh, under sort of crisis conditions, which I suppose you could characterize an election to some extent as it could really start to swing public opinion at a 
at a crucial point. And not just public opinion, but Trump's opinion. So one of the things that came out in this election and one of the things that's been seen as this kind of democratizing force is Twitter and the role of Twitter. Uh, but what news sources is Trump reading? So one observation that's been made, and Trump has kind of admitted this himself, is that he's not reading every briefing in its fullest. In fact, it's very clear that he's watching Fox News um, and reading a bunch of fairly right-wing sites that are debatably reliable to draw conclusions. And so what happens when he turns to a fake news site, perhaps innocently, um, and it says China is on the brink of a U.S. invasion? Like, are we going to invade Beijing? Because that is his source of information. Uh, so it's not just the general public that scares me. It's it's politicians who are unable to distinguish it. I mean, if he if he thinks CNN is fake, what does he think is real? Uh, it's a problem. It certainly is. Uh, but certainly... From a, a liberal media perspective, or if you, the classic biggies, the fat boys in the canoe, you know, of the of the media industry, there has been a sense, certainly from some some quarters, that somehow these sorts of news sites are not always getting it right from a, a tone perspective. The fact that they completely missed all the Trump supporters, that they that they're kind of stuck in the cities and not really, not really getting out to the rest of the country and really figuring out. What's going on? And, and as a result, or maybe uh, putting out headlines and stories that are kind of not resonating with the mainstream, even sure. if it's not with the super partisan part of the population. Sure. I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the kind of discussions within CNN after the election is, you know, how did, how did we not see this coming? Um, and one of the obvious questions was how many of us actually travel to these swing states, these battleground states, and really spend a lot of time understanding the viewers. Um, one of my colleagues, Heather Long, did spend a significant amount of time in Ohio and Florida and Virginia, these key swing states, trying to understand it. But what she did after the election is she went back to these states and she tried to understand why people made the decisions they ultimately made. I mean, when you look at where news bureaus are, right, CNN has a headquarters in Atlanta. Now, Atlanta itself is a more liberal city, but Georgia, the state in which it resides, is not. Um, but then it has headquarters in D.C. and New York and L.A. And it's like, OK, yes, certainly these are liberal cities. And so the people who live in them and work at CNN may have a bias. But but that aside, I think that, again, one of the golden standards of journalism, and a lot of this is being lost, is that good journalists are able to put aside these personal biases and cover events. And, and if events are being portrayed in a way that upsets some guy sitting in Nebraska, then maybe he needs to look at the event itself and wonder why it's being written about that way. I mean, I don't know how you sugarcoat Russian involvement in the U.S. election to make the guy in Nebraska feel better. And I also don't think it's the job of the journalist to make him feel better. It's to inform him. And sometimes that information is scary. But in order to make an informed decision, you need to have all the facts. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. If you're listening to us live on chaifm.com or 101.9 Chai FM, hope you're enjoying the program. Or, indeed, if you're listening to us on the Jerusalem Post, it's good to be with you. We're talking the news, making the news, abusing the news, and we're doing it talking with Yafa Frederick from CNN. She works in the International Division, working both on the website and in the TV section. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Now, for one of the things that is coming out is, you know, the process itself of news creation. I think we are actually 
very much used to, let's call it bipartisan newspapers, maybe not so much in the American tradition, but certainly if you look at continental Europe, uh, other parts of the Commonwealth, you do sometimes find that on newspapers where it's supposed to give sort of all opinions, you have conservative and liberal, there seems to be a partisan's nation, if that's good, the correct word, of the news media, even the mainstream ones to some extent, that people are kind of withdrawing into their corners, finding the people who support their particular news, and more importantly, I think, who will pay for their particular news. And that is how you're getting news. I think particularly in America, if you want to be a seriously informed person these days, you actually have to flick across five or six channels if you want to get the pers- perspective on on an issue you can't just trust one source to give a a general opinion what do you think is driving that phenomenon i think it's been happening honestly since the creation of the internet because you can create curated news feeds of information that aligns with your views in a way that you couldn't before i mean when you think back in terms of the history of media and i'm talking about a u.s perspective since i know tv did not come here uh in the 50s but but in america in the 50s um which was kind of like this golden age of both television and tv news um you had three networks you had cbs you had abc and you had nbc and they were all supposed to be pretty much neutral networks and that was your source of information uh there weren't alternative sources of information and then you had the introduction of cable news in the 80s in the U.S. And so suddenly you had a CNN and you had a Fox News and you had an MSNBC coming onto the scene. And I would argue CNN is still a neutral medium, but the other two certainly have their biases. And so if you were a conservative living in Nebraska, you didn't need to watch CNN anymore. You didn't need to watch ABC or NBC. And then, you know, bring on the age of the Internet in the early 2000s, really, and the the creation of Facebook and Twitter, and now you get to curate what you see. And if you don't want to see certain things, you don't have to. So I think it's a combination of, I mean, I think it's technology that has really led to it. But one of the the biggest pieces of advice, or the best pieces of advice I was given, uh, was from Secretary Madeleine Albright, um, who served under Bill Clinton. And she said to me, every morning I get up and I read five newspapers, and I make sure I disagree with at least two of them, because that is how I get the full spectrum of views. So she gets up and she reads the New York Times and the Washington Post, but then she turns on Fox News and she scours Breitbart Report because she knows that she's she needs to understand what the other side is thinking as well. Um, and I take that very seriously myself, too. I read a lot of publications that I that make my skin crawl, but uh, I want to understand. And I And I want to be able to speak to, especially at a place like CNN, because CNN is one of those networks that like everyone watches, whether they love or hate it. Everyone watches it. You're sitting in any airport in America right now. CNN is what's on TV. Certainly it is a very, very powerful brand all around the world. I want to switch a little bit now to the actual politics of what's going on in America, particularly sort of the Jewish angle about what's been going on. It's a little bit of an unsettling time for Jews in America. Uh, a lot of consensus positions perhaps on Israel, a lot of issues around anti-Semitism and how to tackle it. What's your feeling as a Jewish journalist who kind of also rubbed up against some of that pre-election anti-Semitism on Twitter? Uh, talk to us a little bit about that and what your feeling is about where things are at. Uh, it's it's a very scary time to be <laughs> to be a Jew in America, which is not something that I think I'd ever thought I said I would say actually. But um, you know, since January of this year, we've had over a hundred bomb threats made against Jewish community centers across the country, across 
all states. Um, you know, we've had we've had Jewish cemeteries desecrated in Philadelphia and in St. Louis. And, um, you know, one of the big criticisms lobbied against Trump is that it took until four of these major incidents had happened before he came out and acknowledged that anti-Semitism is a problem and he condemns it and there's no space for hate. It took until after the vandalism of a Jewish cemetery, which is just kind of this like classic anti-Semitic act uh, throughout throughout our history, for Mike Pence to fly down to St. Louis as the vice president and make a statement and help with the cleanup process. And, um, you know, and and this idea of kids being evacuated from schools on a day-to-day basis because some white supremacist feels empowered. Um, I mean, so certainly I've experienced this on a personal level. As a woman on Twitter, I'm often the subject of certain degrees of uh, bigoted misogyny. But as a Jew on Twitter, it, it's taken to a different level. And so, you know, whether people – I love, you know, Adolf Hitler will – Loves to send me messages. Um, but I think right after the election was the first time I realized that this was more than just uh, a fear in a social media universe. It was there, there was some credence to it because, you know, I got a death threat um, that allowed two New York police department officers to come greet me at my door and tell me, like, there are two white supremacists that kind of want to kill you. And we don't know the full details, but do you want a security detail? I mean, it's not something I ever thought I would experience in America, um, and certainly not in, in this day and age, uh, living in a very progressive and liberal city like I do. Um, so it's a scary time. That said, the one thing that gives me hope is I've seen um, the civil society groups activated in a way I've never seen before. Um, you know, starting kind of with the Women's March and, and marching forward, uh, whether it's the American Civil Liberties Union or Planned Parenthood. Everyone is stepping up to the plate. Um, they're getting more donations than they ever did before. I think one of the the stats that I found mind-boggling uh, right after Trump put in place his immigration ban a couple of weeks ago, the American Civil Liberties Union, which defends a lot of these individuals, they raise about $20 million a year in donations. They raised $290 million in that weekend. So there's an activated civil society that is also not going to tolerate all this bigotry. Now, a lot of the focus from what you've kind of spoken about in the last few minutes has been on the right wing of American politics, which has kind of emerged since uh, Trump. But what a lot of people are saying is that the Jewish community is kind of being squeezed because on the one side you have these sorts of crazy classic right wing bigots. But on the other hand, you've got the emergence on the campuses, uh, BDS becoming uh, something of an issue in the states, uh, left wing groups people very concerned about the drift of, of the Democratic Party, for example. A lot of debate made around uh, Keith Ellison and people who you think wouldn't uh, actually argue about certain positions, arguing, which I thought, and it's happening on the right and the left. So the fact that you can, for example, have an argument on Breitbart between Ben Shapiro and uh, I can't remember who was having an argument about Steve Bannon and his anti-Semitic views and if he is anti-Semitic or not, and the right not being able to agree with that, and Alan Dershowitz and Chuck Schumer not being able to agree on whether Keith Ellison is anti-Israel or not, shows that there doesn't seem to be a consensus position on either side of the aisle about what constitutes Jewish best interest in America at the moment. 
So I'm going to disagree with that a little bit. Um, I think a lot of the allegations made against the left are unsubstantiated, to be frank. Um, I mean, I, I speak from personal experience here, but my experience with overt anti-Semitism has come in- exclusively from white supremacists based in the South who often wave Confederate flags. Um, and I... I have met with the Southern Poverty Law Center. I've met with the American Civil Liberties Union. I've met with the Anti-Defamation League. And one of the things that we've looked at is the emergence of these white supremacist groups across the U.S. They have always been there, but they are emboldened in ways we cannot imagine and in ways that certainly keep me up at night, too. Um, I mean, the growth of these groups and the growth in activity and in violent activity is shocking. Um, when people talk to me about the left, I often say, like, how many violent acts, how many death threats are you pointing to when you make these comments? Um, everything is an allegation. And this is where I say facts are important. Like, show me the evidence. Um, Keith Ellison, I, I think he gets, frankly, unfairly maligned about this, too. I mean, he is a black man from Minnesota who grew up Christian, converted to Islam, and in his youth, like many of us, has written positive statements about people we probably don't think so highly of today. I know I have a few people I could say that about. Does that make him the Jewish version of the Antichrist? I don't think so. But notably, he did not become the new DNC chairman. So obviously, some people had some reservations. And so at the end of the day, Democrats said, we're going to go with someone who doesn't have this kind of controversy, who we think represents the best interests of everyone. Um, and I think Tom Perez, as, as the new DNC chair, has the ability to do that. But it does bother me when these allegations get thrown out against the left. And I don't say that just because I, you know, have my own personal views. I think that there's a difference between threatening someone's life and arguing about the boundaries of the state of Israel. But surely you would agree that maybe the the right wing is more, uh, they're less nuanced, right? So it's if, if it's just a case of nuance, uh, if you asked uh, a kid who has to, Go through Columbia University, for example, where they're, where they're replaying Zionism as racism. That's not a boundary issue. That's a, a delegitimization issue. That's a, 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 you know, a, a targeted attack on, on Israel, on America's biggest university campuses, and often quite aggressively protests. I mean, I agree with you. There's no, there haven't been cases of, of violent uh, aggression, but it does seem that that sort of angry wing exists in the, in the left wing as well. Again, I, I, I see this on the ground very differently, having gone to a U.S. campus where there were certainly Palestinian and Muslim groups. Um, but I also think that you can't divorce what's going on in the current state of Israeli politics from, from the way it plays out on U.S. campuses. Um, I went to school when Netanyahu was not in office. And then he was in office at the end of my t- uh, time in, um, in college. And, his coalition, his current very right-wing coalition, is upsetting a lot of left-wing Americans. That's not surprising to me at all. And I'd be lying if I said it didn't disturb me sometimes, too, because it's it's hard to sometimes defend some of the comments that come out of people's mouths, like Naftali Bennett or Victor Lieberman. Um, I suspect that if a more moderate coalition were in power, 
you would not see these same same attacks on Zionism because right now it is very easy for certain groups to position Zionism as this racist, bigoted ideology when you have people like a Victor Lieberman talking about driving people into the sea. Uh, it doesn't help. These are not the best spokespeople that we have in power right now. And so I see, look, Sure. There are always going to be crazies on both sides of the aisle. And I'm sure there are some crazy left wingers who just genuinely hate Jews. But I would argue that these, that Columbia student has probably a slightly more nuanced view of the situation and is looking at Netanyahu's administration and is looking at settlement expansion. And in his mind, sees this as like a gross violation of a variety of treaties um, and responding to that. All right. Uh, I suspect that there would be a lot of people who disagree with you, especially if they've ever had to deal with uh, BDS students on campus or perhaps really what the goals of groups like this are after. But it is it what's for me more crucial is somehow, even during the Obama administration, which had all this uh, sort of uh, angst and argument with Israel, there was kind of consensus position across uh, Jewish politics or is- American politics that, you know, Israel is this issue that we can kind of all get behind and, you know, we, there's a bit of argument, there's a bit of not argument, but there's kind of a, a at least a, a middle road intact that everyone can agree around. Watching the news in America at the moment, you get the sense that the Republicans are trying to outdo themselves to be as pro-Israel as like, you know, to try and do their best to be slightly to the right of Naftali Ballot. What a change from South Africa. <laughs> yes. And, uh, but on the left, there's sort of a, a, dis- a dissonance and parts of the Democratic Party support Israel and parts are cooler perhaps than, uh, than perhaps the fact that Bernie Sanders didn't go to APAC during the election. All these sorts of things sure. sort of signaling a, a, a bit of a dissolving of the consensus position in American politics on what Israel represents. Okay, so so this is where I think numbers and facts matter a lot. Um, what people say and what people do are two different things. Um, you cannot win a U.S. election if you are anti-Israel, regardless of what party you represent and regardless of what city or town in this country you run in. That's a fact. Um, there's plenty of data to support that. If you look at the voting records of Republicans and Democrats in Congress, Republicans vote with Israel it's somewhere of like 85 to 90 percent of the time. Democrats vote with Israel 65 to 70 percent of the time. So both of them, majority wise, are voting with Israel. Yes, Democrats have less uh Less support, but certainly, I mean, again, and I say this sitting in South Africa now, I'm sure the Jewish community would die to hear numbers like that from the ANC and EFF and I guess DA. Um, they're pretty high. I actually think these divisions you're describing started under Obama. I don't think they're starting now under Trump. I think Obama is actually was a key force. He did not have a great relationship with Netanyahu, and everyone knew that. And the emergence of J Street, for example, that was under the Obama administration. That wasn't under Trump. Um, so, you know, these kind of very left-wing Jews taking issue with the state of Israel is not that new to American politics. We've been dealing with it for the last eight years. Um I mean, Trump's relationship with Israel, to me, is going to be a fascinating one to watch unfold. His press conference with Bibi Netanyahu last week was one of the strangest things I've ever witnessed on TV. And I work in television. Um, some of the, the the way Trump spoke about it as if it were some, like, minor business deal was kind of insane. It's like, you know, hold back on the settlements a little. What was Netanyahu supposed to say to that? I'm OK with a one or two state solution. 
What does a one-state solution to Trump look like? I know what it looks like to Netanyahu. I know what it looks like to Abbas. Um, it was it was a very strange press conference. That said, Netanyahu is very, very close with the Kushner family. And obviously, Jared Kushner has quite a bit of influence in that White House. So I don't think that the United States is about to turn anti-Israel. Uh, but it does leave a lot of questions of like, what is the Trump administration's relationship going to be with Israel? And what does Trump really understand about this conflict if he thinks that like, all you have to do is get a boss and Netanyahu in a room and a simple handshake will solve the, the issue? Is there also a risk of this kind of becoming a fashionable issue amongst the civil society community? You know, it's a sort of like one of those things that you do, you know, if you are a civil society activist, you uh, mm-hmm. fight for abortion rights, you uh, Pose the Keystone Pipeline, and you sort of have a garden variety anti-Israel sentiment. Uh, I think a lot yeah. of people were shocked to see what's her name, Linda Sasser, uh, heading up the Women's March, who sort of had a controversial profile and certainly upset uh, some people on yeah. uh, very more more right-wing sides of the aisle. Do you think the civil society in America is seeing this issue in that way? So this is where pr- I would say it's again probably more nuanced. I mean, Linda Sarsour is a Palestinian American. If she came out and had pro-Israel views, I'd be very surprised by that. Just like if I came out and had hyper-pro-Palestinian views, people would be probably quite shocked. Um, and so the fact that she is an advocate for Palestinian rights and views Palestinians as a cause, well, guess where her parents came from? And guess what narrative she was raised with? Um, notably, and I was at the Women's March, so I, I can point to this with some concrete evidence here, that didn't come up at all at the Women's March. Um, in Were you wearing of, one of those hats? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask that. None of, none of those pink hats. Uh, pink is not my color. But um, if I it were black... what they're called on, on air, unfortunately. Yes, but if they were black, perhaps I would have. <laughs> um, so, you know, Linda is a controversial figure. She's a Palestinian American. She is going to advocate for the Palestinian side. Uh, but at the Women's March itself, and, you know, it's, I, I will say, I saw a couple of signs that were clearly about Palestinian rights and, and Israel being an apartheid state. That's not, that's not a new concept. But of 750,000 people I saw in Washington, I can point to two signs about that. So I think that, yes, it will get lumped in with it. But how many Americans... Honestly, how many Americans actually care about this issue and are actually making decisions based on it outside of the immediate Jewish and Palestinian communities? I would argue it's probably not as high as we like to think when we live in our kind of little bubbles. Yeah, certainly is very, very interesting. And taking stock of what's been going on in the American elections at the moment and trying to figure out what in the world is going on in American society Is it the American dream or the American nightmare? We're talking to Yaffa Frederick. She's from CNN and she works in the international department on both the website and the TV station. And you're listening to 101.9 ChaiFM, ChaiFM.com. This is the new Blue Review. And I'm Benji Shulman and I hope you're enjoying the show uh, and uh, are trying to get a sense about what's going on as well. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Yeah, for, we've spoken quite a lot about sort of internal dynamics uh, around the parties. Do you think that there's parts of, for example, the Republican Party that also lost in this election as opposed to just, you know, the Republican Party winning. You think here about George Bush, for example, who suddenly is becoming this giant hero. All the left is like, wait, bring, bring 
George Beck. We call it Bush nostalgia in America, things we never thought we would say. Um, yeah, I think the establishment lost. I mean, Trump was an anti-establishment candidate. He was very much of that kind of Tea Party division, which emerged when Obama was first elected in 2008. You had this kind of Tea Party coalition that was super anti-Obama and wanted to really downsize the size of government and had a much more isolationist approach to foreign policy. Um, and Trump very much comes out of that vein. He was the anti-establishment candidate. And, you know, one... When the kind of famous and gross incident, which I won't describe in detail on radio, but when it came out that he had made those comments on the bus about grabbing women inappropriately, it was like 50 establishment Republicans came out and unendorsed him. And then notably on Election Day, they all ate their words and were like, we all have to work together now. Uh, but I think it was the establishment that got punished because the establishment stopped representing all of their constituents and started just representing the wealthy few. Um, and Trump... Trump came out there with a very simple and clear message that he would be a president for everyone, and particularly for those disenfranchised white collar workers in Michigan, Wisconsin, who had watched their jobs disappear, not just overseas, but to machines that could now do them and were 50 years old and didn't have any job skills um, for the 21st century. Trump spoke directly to those people in a way that the establishment Republicans have kind of been ignoring. Uh, so I do think that they lost. That said, they have the majority of both houses. They have the presidency, and they're certainly trying to work with Trump. But you can already see some of those tensions. Yes, absolutely. And what about on the Dem side? I mean, uh, there was a sense before the election that after this debacle with this leader Trump that the Republicans would have to pick up the pieces and start again. But in the end, it was the Democrats who sort of had to begin again. And although we have, as you said, uh, Tom Perez and uh, Ellison kind of head of the DNC, no one really emerging as kind of the person who's going to now lead the pack. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some early contenders. Uh, so I think Elizabeth Warren and, and Cory Booker are putting their names out there. One of the things you have to know about U.S. politics is if you want to know who's going to run it in the next election, you have to see who's sitting on the Foreign Service Committees in the Senate because everyone will have domestic experience. That's the easy part. But having the foreign policy experience requires uh, sitting on the right committees. Um, and so notably, Warren and Booker have moved into certain committees. And Warren was probably probably the most vocal senator against him consistently throughout the campaign. She's also a unique woman because she represents both the Bernie side of politics, but can appeal to the Hillary moderates. Um, and so she could potentially be a unifying for- force. She would be 71. So, I mean, Trump is 70 now, but uh, she's someone who I think could be a contender. But I agree with you. I mean, the Democratic Party has a lot of soul searching to do. They need to figure out who they represent and how they best pivot. Um, they lo- they have lost those blue collar workers. Um, I misspoke when I called them white collar workers in the last question. They've lost those blue collar workers in the Midwest. Um, these were people who were solidly Democrat for the last 30 years, and now they've pivoted because they don't feel like the Democrats are catering to them. So they have to figure out how to how to either bring those people back in or make sure that the rest of America uh, starts having lots and lots of babies because the the numbers are not quite in their favor. And I mean, the one thing, again, about U.S. politics, which is always so confusing to outsiders, is the way the electoral system works. Hillary won the popular vote, but somehow didn't become president. Um, and so there's this numbers game you have to play in the states. Um, one of the commentators that I work with said to me after the election, you know, it's like, if you really want to sway the next election as a liberal, go move to a swing state, because that's how you actually have impact. If you stay living in New York, you're not going to change the outcome in Michigan at all. Um, now, frankly, you probably couldn't pay me to move to Michigan. But uh 
I get it. <laughs> I get the sentiment. And I think Democrats need to to strategize. And I hope Perez and Ellison can get it done because it's desperately needed. I mean, we have midterm elections in 2018, and that's just Congress that goes up for re-election. And the Democrats are defending key swing states. So it's it's unlikely they'll take anything back in 2018, which means they have to have these, these long game um, sites on 2020, assuming Trump uh, and company makes it to 2020 without impeachment, um, which is also a possibility. It certainly is interesting. And also the fact that the Republicans seem to have done a really good job of getting the not grassroots but like local organizations uh going the 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 democrats seem to have a good get out the vote strategy and you know on the election day but the issues with gerrymandering of of districts Mm -hmm. that seem that sort of exclude chunks of the population um by way of of how the the vote is apportioned out is going to be a real challenge because basically democrats have to get many more votes for what should on the on a basic basis uh, be places that would be supporting them totally i mean one of the the most brilliant republican strategies in 08 when they they lost the white house and they lost both both um houses in congress was local elections um if you can win state legislatures and that's where the gerrymandering happens they're the ones who are re- redrawing all the district lines you can impact uh, the elections for years to come. Um, and so that became the strategy in 08. We can't we can't necessarily win on the national level now, but if we can start to win on the state and local level, we can do that. And interestingly enough, Obama now, you know, the question is, what does Obama do when he, he leaves the White House? He's starting a foundation that is very much focused on this issue of getting Democrats back in on the local level and this civic engagement, which is him going back to his roots because that, that's what he started as, a community organizer. Um, and I think that Obama, who still has a lot of sway within the Democratic Party, is going to be a key influencer um, in in helping the DNC really start to focus on the local level because it's going to take a long time to undo gerrymandering. Um, but every 10 years, we have a census in the, in our country. And so things have to get reapportioned, which means 2020 is when we're going to start to see lines have to shift again. Um, so Democrats have about four years to get the strategy underway. And, and uh, we certainly hope they do. What do you think people are going to view Obama's legacy as. It's very interesting. Already there's, I think, a movie about him and he has to kind of now set up his presidential library and his foundation. Where do you think he goes now and how do you think people are going to see him? It's, I mean, it's an interesting question to ask someone like me because, again, I live in my own kind of liberal media bubble where he uh, is beloved in a lot of ways. Um, and if you go into... Nebraska, you will hear a very different answer to this question. Um, I suspect that he will be viewed favorably in, more in terms of domestic policy than foreign policy. One thing that I, I saw liberals and conservatives agree on during his administration is that Obama didn't have a lot of foreign policy experience when he got into the White House, and some of the decisions he made reflected a lack of experience. What does that say about Trump's decision making? Not a lot of great things, um, but you know, the way Syria was dealt with or frankly not dealt with uh, upset people on both sides. Um, however, Obamacare, as controversial as it was and as contra- as much as Republicans want to dismantle it, one of the amazing things that I've been watching in the U.S. is these town halls around Obamacare where these Republicans are getting killed by their constituents who are like, you're going to take away our health care and you don't have an alternative in place. We're going to drop dead. And so people are seeing it less as 
they're seeing less of the Obama and Obamacare and more of the care in it. Um, so I, I suspect that he will go down favorably. Look, at the end of the day, he's the first African-American president we've had. He he breaks records. He was one of the youngest presidents we had. Publishing houses were bidding on his memoirs, um, and it went up to $60 million, the bidding wars over his. So he's beloved. There's kind of a celebrity or cult status around him. Um, does that spread across the entire country? No, but on a global level. And I think that this is probably more important than just how Americans view him, but how the world views him. Um, I think he will go down as a thoughtful and dignified leader who maybe didn't always make the best decision in every situation, but certainly didn't start unnecessary wars, uh, which his predecessor was certainly accused of. Um, and one of the big fears that liberals have with Trump is he'll start a nuclear war on Twitter accidentally. Um Certainly uh, looks to be quite an interesting fact that uh, Twitter will be dealing with. I can't see George Bush on Twitter. It just didn't make, wouldn't make it. Can you imagine George Bush and like Hussein uh, touring? Well, one of the best memes that came out of uh, the presidential inauguration a couple months ago, it started pouring rain in the middle of the inauguration and George W. Bush had to put on this poncho and he was struggling. Boy, was he struggling to figure out how to put on this poncho. And then he finally gets it on and he has this like sense of satisfaction on his face. And it was the most adorable thing. And again, I never thought I would say Bush and adorable in the same sentence, but I am. Um, and one of the other things Bush has taken to since he left office is painting. Um, and some of his paintings have been released to the public. And I will say, like, he's certainly better than I am. Um, but he's gotten better with time. And so we can't – the joke is we can't wait to see uh, how he depicts both Obama and Trump and, and his future paintings on his ranch in Texas. Yeah, that will be certainly quite interesting and no doubt on his Instagram account. Uh, lastly, I mean, basically, all the identity politics, all the issues, all the foreign policy – it still comes down to the Clintonian formula in American politics that it's the economy, stupid, right? And that's where Trump has really actually poked the bear, yeah. uh, calling for protectionism, calling for – Withdrawing from our TPP, yeah. trying to make unilateral training or you know bilateral trade agreements as opposed to these huge multilateral ones. Whether we'll renegotiate NAFTA in the next four years is, is highly likely. No, I mean I, I, I give credit where credit is due. Trump did an excellent job of – having a clear and very simple message. Um, and making America great again started with making all of these disenfranchised white guys feel like they had a future in this country, um, feel like they, they had the means to provide for themselves and for their families. Um, he spoke directly to them. One of the best strategies, and I've actually seen Malema use the strategy here, is rather than go to the ma major city in the country and have a big rally, go to the town kilometers away from the major city where there's 1,200 people and speak to them. And Trump's campaign, he didn't go to Philadelphia. He went to some suburb an hour and a half outside of Philadelphia. It's not even called a suburb at the time. It's an exurb. Um, and he spoke directly to those people. And it was very effective. He took it to the people. He didn't stay in the cities. Clinton was much more city-focused. Yeah, certainly. I think the economics will be very interesting to watch, especially because you know, America has all these financial issues and debt issues and uh, GDP issues that they have to face. So we have uh, bigger growth than South Africa does. Yeah, for Frederick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really good to be with you. And uh, 
if people want to find you, where can they find out more of your views and uh, opinions? So, as as a producer, I have none of my own. Um, but you can find me at cnn.com slash opinions. All right, well, there you go. Yaffa Frederick from CNN. Thanks so much for being with us on the New Blue Review. Thank you for having me. Brings us to the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. It's uh, enlightening, as always. I hope that you find our guests. If you disagree, and I suspect you might with this particular podcast, you can uh, threaten us, send us your Twitter trolls, uh, email us on benji at high.co.za, or you can find us on Twitter at at Chai FM or at Benji Shulman will be happy to take all forms of abuse and uh, criticism as they might. Uh, thank you to everyone for helping put the show together. Thank you to Vuzi who has been pushing all the big red buttons on the show today and indeed to the whole station and uh, we'll speak to you next week on the new Blue Review.